0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded.
1: Talk Radio twelve ten WPHT WPHD HD WOGL HD three Philadelphia from the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios where relationships matter odyssey station it's time for the delaware valley's first radio doctor on call every sunday morning at 10 this is your radio doctor with dr marianne ritchie presented exclusively by independence that P-Cross. is a very very robust vigorous achoo sneeze that's what that is and that's not what we're talking about Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
2: Good Sunday morning and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm very fortunate to be your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Last week we learned breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. Though 1% of cases are in men. The good news, most cases are found early at a curable stage. So screening is important for finding cancers you can't feel. But mammograms can miss up to 20% of cancers. So if you feel something not seen on a mammogram, please tell your doctor immediately. The earlier we find a cancer, the earlier we start therapy, the better your chance for a cure. Today we'll learn about breast reconstruction, genetic testing, and treatment with chemotherapy and hormone therapy. From Thomas Jefferson University, we have Dr. Steve Copet, Professor of Surgery and Director of the Division of Plastic Surgery. Welcome Steve, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
2: So a patient has a new diagnosis of breast cancer and you start with a breast surgeon, but before you decide on lumpectomy and possible radiation or a mastectomy, the patient should know all the options, including reconstruction. So please tell us about that and how you start with the plan.
1: Sure. Um, I, we do think that every patient who uh, is considering lumpectomy and radiation versus mastectomy or is told they need a mastectomy should uh, be evaluated by a plastic surgeon. Uh, there are some patients who are not considered candidates for reconstruction, maybe because of uh, pre-existing health conditions. Um but the vast majority of patients are, are candidates for reconstruction if they're going to have a mastectomy. And if they're making the decision lumpectomy versus mastectomy, we think it's important that they weigh the pros and cons of each. So we see every patient at Jefferson who's considering those options. Um, what we try to do first is delineate uh, the type of mastectomy that's gonna be performed because obviously you can't figure out what reconstruction you're gonna do until you figure out what's missing. There's really two basic mastectomies. Um, There are nipple sparing mastectomies, where the nipple and areolar complex are spared. And then there's not nipple sparing mastectomies, which have various names, but the gist of it is that the nipple and areola would be removed. And those two represent sort of different defects for the plastic surgeon in terms of whether some of the skin needs to be replaced. Um, And some of that decision making occurs by the, is decided on by the breast surgeon. Um, in terms of the size of the tumor and its relationship, how close it is to the nipple and areola, and the other analysis that goes into that is the, the shape of the breast. So women who have um, breast ptosis, which is another medical, which is a medical term for droop, um, breast reconstruction routinely will not produce a very drooping breast. And so some patients are considered for a mastectomy where we remove some of the extra skin intentionally, similar to when we do a breast reduction or breast lift. So the first step is is to do an examination to sort of get a feel for both the size of the breast, the intended size that the patient is looking for, and, and the shape of the breast
2: preoperatively. Sure. And I think, too, we've stressed that, again, talk to the, the breast surgeon, the plastic surgeon, but also the oncologist, the cancer specialist, so you get your genetic testing, hormone testing, because sometimes if you find out that you have a positive gene, instead of just having surgery on one side, you might consider bilateral mastectomy and so on. So it's so important to get the whole team involved early on. So tell us, Steve, I know you told me that when you do surgery, a reconstruction, sometimes you use the patient's own tissue or implants or combination. To Tell us a little about that
1: yeah so the key to breast reconstruction there's no perfect breast reconstruction there's there's options and the key is to sort of line the patient up with their best option based on what their intent is and and what they hope to get out of the surgery and, and sort of what donor options they have in terms of other tissues so there's three basic categories there's reconstructions that are done just with implants There's reconstructions that are done with just your own tissue, and then there's reconstructions that are done with a combination of an implant and your own tissue. And they each, as I said, have their own pros and cons. Um, The most common way to do an implant-only reconstruction would be to, most commonly, would be to place a temporary stretching implant called a tissue expander, and then a few months after surgery, convert it to a permanent implant. Most commonly, that would be a silicone implant. So that's going to represent sort of a shorter surgeries um, with a little bit of a nickel and diming you through the the post-op process to stretch out the tissues to make a pocket that we need to put in a permanent implant. There are some instances where you can just put the implant in at the first stage, but that's not as as common. The all-your-own-tissue option most commonly is taking tissue from your abdomen which we would call a DEEP flap, D-I-E-P flap. It's an abbreviation for a long term that I'll spare you. But the gist of it is taking what we would normally take with an abdominoplasty or a tummy tuck, and instead of throwing that tissue away, uh, using microsurgery we connect it to blood vessels in the chest so we can build a breast out of the fat and skin from your abdomen. Um, that's going to produce a, a very lifelike, alive piece of tissue that's going to feel and look very much like a breast. It's bigger surgery, it's longer surgery, and not everyone's a candidate for it, um, but it's an excellent option. And then there's one in the middle where we borrow a muscle from your back called mm-hmm. the latissimus muscle, and that's going to provide some muscle and skin, um and then, but is not big enough to build a whole breast out of for most people, so we use a small implant underneath that. So all three have different are different in terms of their uh, how long the surgery is, the risks, the recovery period, um, And so we, we really try to line up the patient with their best option um, based on whether they have tissue that they can use. Um, other health issues and and sometimes it comes down to how quickly the patient needs to get back to work whether they have young children they're caring for so there's a million it seems variables that go into sort of helping fit the patient with their best choice yeah
2: we've about a minute and a half left uh, Steve uh, or any big difference with revision surgery I would guess if there's scar tissue from previous surgery that makes it a little bit harder
1: yeah, I mean, the, the biggest, the biggest uh, innovation in the last, say, five, to seven to ten years is that we use fat grafting a lot now. You know, if there's any contour irregularities or or areas that we need to touch up after surgery, we can do liposuction and take that fat and place it as fat grafts to fill in a hollow or an area where there was a previous scar or where there's been some atrophy of the tissue. That significantly improves a lot of results and also um, tattooing for um nipple areola reconstruction in patients who we don't save their nipple and areola we you know I, it, when i first started in practice i would do the tattooing now we have tattoo artists who do it with three-dimensional shadowing and shading so it looks incredibly real and those would be two things that really polish up a lot of uh reconstructions and have really improved the results
2: Sure. Well, thank you so much for this great information, Steve. Nobody wants to hear the word cancer in the same sentence as their name, even if it's early. And your great work and as a team make cancer a little bit less awful for a person to hear it. And it really helps to preserve a woman's appearance, which, again, makes it uh, a little bit easier to tolerate, I guess. So thank oh, you so thank much. you, it's
1: certainly great the most to- rewarding part of our job.
2: Yes. Thanks, Steve. Take care.
1: All right. Thank you. Take care.
2: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And welcome back. We're talking now with Dr. Kevin Fox, a medical oncologist. A special welcome, Kevin. Uh, You are the Marianne T. and Robert J. McDonald Professor in Breast Care Excellence from the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, a very highly respected cancer specialist with breast cancer. Kevin, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for the invitation, Marianne.
2: So if I have a new diagnosis of breast cancer, what do I do next? What doctor should I see first?
3: all right so the well when one is confronted with a new diagnosis of breast cancer uh, it can be a little overwhelming and my very strong belief is that the best starting off point for any patient is with a good surgeon Um, the the nice thing to know about breast surgeons is that in the philadelphia area we have an abundance of outstanding breast surgeons and I, I honestly believe that the best starting off point for a patient who has just been told she has the diagnosis is to first meet with a surgeon. I think a qualified surgeon, and we'll talk a little bit, or I'll talk a little bit about what, what qualifications really mean, will be able to guide the patient uh, as to the next steps. Um, most breast cancer patients, when they have the diagnosis of breast cancer, will proceed to surgical removal of the cancer. But not all cases, there are exceptions to that where the breast surgeon might actually tell the patient that she should first see a medical oncologist before she has surgery. Because there are certain circumstances where we will actually give drug treatments first in preparation for surgery. But the breast surgeons, especially those that are specifically trained in breast cancer, are very adept at pointing a patient in the right direction as to what her next step should be. Now, every health system in the Philadelphia and New Jersey and Delaware will have within it qualified, fellowship trained breast surgeons. And I would encourage any patient who has, or any woman or man with a diagnosis of breast cancer, to seek out a breast surgeon who is in a, a, a a medical institution and has had appropriate specialty training in breast surgery. We have many of them in Philadelphia. There are many excellent surgeons. There are excellent surgeons in the Penn System, where I work, of course, but there are also excellent surgeons in the Jefferson System, in the Cooper System, all through South Jersey Uh, I don't want to leave anybody out. Fox Chase, of course, has superb breast surgeons. Christiana Care has good breast surgeons. That should be the starting off point. The surgeon can direct the patient from the starting point.
2: And you make an interesting point, Kevin, depending on the circumstances, and we'll talk a little bit about the types of breast cancer, what those circumstances might be that would lead to different treatment, because you test for hormone receptors, and when the biopsy tells us what type of breast cancer, how might that influence your advice to the patient?
3: All right, so the, and this can be an overly complicated explanation, but there are, when a breast cancer is diagnosed, it is always tested for estrogen receptor and for progesterone receptor. They go hand in hand. Some patients have both, some have one. And they're also tested then for this thing called her 2 uh, her 2 is simply a receptor protein that is present on some breast cancer cells in excess. So if a patient in current times has a new diagnosis of breast cancer that is H-E-R-2 positive, and that is the exception. Most patients don't have that, but if a patient has an H-E-R-2 positive breast cancer, then she will sometimes, but not always, be advised to have treatment, medical treatment first before surgery. That medical treatment is very intensive. It can involve chemotherapy and these targeted agents called Herceptin or Trastuzumab and Progetta or Pertuzumab. So the surgeon, upon seeing that the patient has an HER2 positive breast cancer, may refer the patient to an oncologist, a medical oncologist for chemotherapy before she has surgery. There's another type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer, where the cancer has neither estrogen receptor nor progesterone receptor nor HER2, it has none of those things. That is only about 10% of all breast cancers, but those patients also may be advised by their surgeon to have chemotherapy before surgery. The most common type of breast cancer, which is estrogen receptor positive and HCR2 negative, usually doesn't need preoperative chemotherapy. Those patients will usually go directly to surgery except under certain circumstances. So the surgeon has a relatively easy decision to make based on the type of breast cancer the patient has and the size of the cancer. But those are the three main types of breast cancer to review them one more time estrogen receptor positive and HER2 negative is the most common and does not require chemotherapy under most circumstances breast cancers that are HER2 positive often require chemotherapy before surgery and patients that are have the third type which is called triple negative which is the least common type also will often have chemotherapy before surgery that's a big change in how we've treated breast cancer just in the last few years. The standard historic treatment for breast cancer was always do surgery first and follow it with other treatments to reduce the risk of recurrence. There are some advantages to doing the treatments in reverse order, where the patient will receive chemotherapy, and these other targeted agents against her 2 or chemotherapy by itself before they have surgery. This is the biggest change in the way we treated breast cancer in the recent years and has been very useful in identifying patients at risk for recurrence, modifying their treatments so that the risk of recurrence can be kept to a minimum.
2: Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, if we wanted to paint a visual, these receptors, either estrogen or progesterone or HER uh, is a type of protein that helps cancer cells grow. If we can block the process of these receptors uh, by giving targeted therapy or chemotherapy that says, okay, we're going to break this assembly line. uh, It can make a difference and maybe shrink the tumor before you operate and maybe even reduce from a mastectomy to a lumpectomy, I I understand sometimes. Is that the case?
3: That's exactly right. One of the major advantages of preoperative Mm -hmm. or pre-surgical chemotherapy Is that, for example, a patient has a diagnosis of breast cancer and the surgeon thinks it's just a little too big to do a lumpectomy, it can easily be shrunk with these various forms of treatment, sometimes shrunk dramatically so that the surgery becomes easier and the patient can have a lumpectomy, which is what she wants, but may not have been a candidate for a lumpectomy
2: before she started Sure. And then we have to bring in genetic testing because if a woman has a small lesion, uh, but genetic testing shows you have a certain BRCA gene, which is not very common, I understand, but uh, some other genetic uh, finding, it might cause uh, you to advise thinking about more drastic surgery, yes?
3: Exactly right. So one of the jobs of the surgeon um, and all of the appropriately trained surgeons are very good at this, is they incorporate the type of the breast cancer the patient has, the age of the patient, and then they take a thorough family history. A small number of patients have a genetic inherited predisposition to getting breast cancer. Most people don't have that, but a a small percentage do, and the surgeon will decide who should be tested and who shouldn't. Because if a patient tests positive for one of these genetic mutations, this is not something in the like cancer, this is something that the patient has in their own blood, then she may have to consider having more radical surgery because her risk of getting a recurrence of breast cancer is in the same breast may be higher. The risk of getting cancer in the opposite breast, a new breast cancer, may be much higher than average. She may considered to have preventive surgery, that is, mastectomies on both sides. Sure. It is, not for ev- it is not for everybody, but for patients with these uncommon genetic mutations, it is a frequent and medically correct decision.
2: We have about a minute left, Kevin. What would you say is the most important thing a woman can do to help herself if she's never had breast cancer?
3: I think she should adhere strongly to the advice of getting annual mammographic screening. Mammograms are quick, they're a little uncomfortable, they're inexpensive, and they are the best tool we have for detecting early breast cancer and saving lives.
2: And we've said uh, repeatedly that mammograms are good. Um, They have a miss rate, though, as, as high as 20%. So if you feel a lump, in your breast under your arm above or below your your collarbone don't think that you gotta pass because the mammogram was normal i'm sure you have a lot of cases that women persist or come back and say i'm i'm not feeling 100 here so uh, let's take a little break and we'll come back and keep talking about screening and we're back with dr kevin fox from the university of pennsylvania for our final segment, Kevin. Tell us a little bit more about density. That's a worry for women when they see that on the mammogram report.
3: Right. So when a woman has a mammogram, just a regular screening mammogram, which we encourage very strongly once a year, she will sometimes be told she has what's considered high breast density. That's just a characteristic of breast tissue that some women have and some women don't. The younger you are, the more density you have and high breast density can make a mammogram harder to read. And in the concern is that a small cancer might be missed if the breast is very dense. So there are rules in place. Now Um, I should say there are laws in place that if a woman has high breast density, she is entitled to additional testing, testing, which will uh, be better able to see the breast tissue. The, Controversy, if there is a controversy, what is the best test for that woman to do if she has high breast density? There are two ways of doing another test if the mammogram shows this. One is a breast ultrasound. Now, difference, there are differences of opinion about this. Uh, and I will speak for the University of Pennsylvania is that we don't like ultrasound because we are concerned about its accuracy. The other kind of test a woman can have done is called a breast MRI. An MRI scan is a more complex test. It takes a little longer. It requires an intravenous injection. But it gives an exquisite picture of the breast, which helps supplement the mammogram. So the point of this is that if a woman is told she has high mammographic density, she is entitled to additional testing. And it is by law required that her insurance cover that test. Our preference here at Penn is for an MRI scan as the supplemental test. And uh, every year, in addition to a mammogram, a woman is entitled to have this as a regular part of her screening. It's a big commitment. Uh, People will be getting two tests instead of one. Uh, But we do believe that MRI scanning has the capability of detecting breast cancers that are missed on a mammogram. But I also want to emphasize that the reverse is also true. A mammogram can sometimes pick up things that an MRI scan will miss. So it's not either or. It's it's you, you do both. And this is you know this is all new information. This is a brand new thing. And uh, we're wor- working very hard to improve the technology of MRI scanning to make it faster and easier. We're working very hard on that, and we're hopefully going to be successful in. This thing called fast MRI, where the patient comes in and has the MRI scan, mm-hmm. but it's done in less time. It's a less of a, an ordeal for the patient. So that I would say is the biggest development in screening in years. Now we have more than mammography. We have mm-hmm. something that is not not necessarily better than a mammogram, but adds to the value of the mammogram. Sure.
2: Well, Kevin, thank you. This is very valuable information, and I think especially when when women hear that their high density mammogram report that further studies will be covered by by law uh, there by insurance. If a woman wanted to read more or or a man, uh, what websites do you re- recommend your patients check?
3: I, so I, I think one of the one of the best. Um, internet sites for breast cancer patients is breastcancer.org, which is a very thorough, very exhaustive, and very fair representation of uh, how one goes through the process uh, when they have the diagnosis of breast cancer. And then the other is something called Oncolink, O-N-C-O-L-I-N-K, which is a website that was developed here at Penn, which is a, a website for all patients with all types of cancer but has a, I think a very informative and very up-to-date section on breast cancer. So those are the two of many websites uh, well, that, I, that I, I think have proven to be useful for patients over the years.
2: Well, thank you because there is so much information out there. It's wonderful to have a suggestion from somebody like you who explains things so clearly and so um, helpfully and reassuring to patients. Kevin Fox from the University of Pennsylvania, thank you for your time. We really appreciated having you today.
3: I very much appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. Yes. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ann Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com
1: and in the search bar, type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand.
2: And we're back with Sue Miller-Samuel an advanced practice nurse in genetics at Jefferson with a wealth of knowledge about cancer genetics testing. Welcome, Sue, it's always great to have you.
0: Well, thank you, Marianne, it's great to be here.
2: Now we're focused on breast cancer today, but in general, why would a patient wanna have cancer genetic testing?
0: Well, there's, there's many different reasons. Um, probably the most uh, popular reasons would be if they're newly diagnosed with cancer and they may need to make a treatment decision based on their genetic test result. Um, They may have been previously diagnosed with cancer years ago, and genetic testing might have been recommended then, but they opted out at that time. Or they may have no personal history of cancer, but there might be a strong family history of cancer.
2: And as you often say, and we've been talking through these segments, if a person has a new diagnosis of breast cancer, if they learn something about their genetic history, it could change their therapy. So do it early on, uh, not after the surgery's been done. Um, Plus, Sue, so much has changed not so long ago. The only genetic testing for breast cancer seemed to be BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. What has been happening as this has evolved?
0: Well, that's a great question, and quite a bit actually has been happening, especially in the past five to ten years. Um, The cancer genetics world has been rapidly evolving, and BRCA testing is still important, but it's not the only genetic testing that's important. If a person had cancer genetic testing more than a few years ago, a person's genetic testing is probably not as complete as it can be now. It's never a bad idea for a person that had previous genetic testing, especially if it was negative, to check back in with the clinical center that facilitated their testing to see if they might need a genetic counseling and testing update. And that's really because other genes have emerged um, that can be related to certain types of hereditary breast and other cancers. And with a significant personal and or family cancer history, um, BRCA genetic testing is probably not enough if you want to be thorough. And it's important to remember, too, that most genes related to hereditary breast cancer are typically related to other types of increased cancer risks as well. So you may get more information than what you initially bargained for, and you have to be okay with that, too. Um, some genes may relate to that are related to breast cancer risk may also be related to pancreatic cancer risk, colon cancer risk, stomach cancer risk, or even sarcomas and brain cancer risk.
2: Mm-hmm. And you bring up a good point because we've learned so much in recent years. And the other point that I always remind my patients, not nearly as eloquently as you, but that if you've had BRCA gene testing more than five years ago, There's new information about that as well. Tell us about that. So with the BRCA gene specifically,
0: um, really an additional companion test was introduced probably between 2007 and 2008. And it took maybe a little while for that to work its way into common clinical practice. But additional parts of the genes that couldn't be visualized prior to that time could be Mm -hmm. visualized after the 2002. 2007-2008 timeline. So it's important to see even just for BRCA testing alone, that testing is up to date. Mm
2: -hmm. And if you go for genetic testing, the the professional genetic advisor is going to want your family history. But it doesn't mean just sitting there saying my brother had this, my da- my mother had that. It means getting a copy of any genetic testing you've had and getting the actual genetics test report from any of your relatives who were tested. I think that's a really important point to bring home as well. So I know that most of the time with most cancers, the vast majority of breast cancers and others are not hereditary. There is no gene that explains why it shows up in one person. Um, maybe seventy to eighty percent are in that category of sporadic. It just happens because the biggest risk factor is getting older. The longer we live, the more environmental exposures weaken our genes and immune system. and And so, can you tell us a little bit more about that and the other two categories? Um, of course. And that's true.
0: Um, most cancers, what we call sporadic non-hereditary cancers,, um, often, but not always, occur after the age of 50, and the person diagnosed typically has no significant person or family risk factors for that particular type of cancer. It's a surprise, kind of comes out of left field, so to speak. And because cancer is so common, especially as we get older, there are guidelines that are defined by professional organizations regarding who should be tested, And genetic testing is not really considered to be a screening test for the person at average risk. There is usually something to get into that genetic testing ballpark. With true hereditary types of cancer syndromes, all cancer is genetic, but only 5 to 10% of cancers that occur have a true hereditary link. And that typically involves a single copy of a gene that has a typographical error in its genetic code, um, something that we call a mutation, which may be passed by either parent, mom or dad, to a child right at the moment that child is conceived. And through genetic testing, and depending on which of the 20,000 or so genes that we have is involved, a true hereditary cancer syndrome might be identified. For example, If a person is found to carry a hereditary mutation in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, they are said to have hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome, a mouthful, abbreviated HBOCS. And it's important to remember that a positive genetic test result where a hereditary mutation is identified is the only informative genetic test result since then we know what we're dealing with and we can give recommendations to affected individuals to help them reduce certain cancer risks or hopefully find a cancer early if a cancer might occur. Then the third category that we look at, what we call familial cancers, and this describes about 15 to 20% of cases that we see. And in a person with a specific cancer or cancer family history, Even when the family history looks very compelling, the genetic testing is often negative and reveals no mutation to explain why the cancers may have occurred. But it's important to remember that a negative genetic test result, it doesn't change the personal or family cancer history, and we would still manage a person and their close family members at higher risk based on that personal and family cancer history that brought us to the genetic testing option in the first place.
2: Right, so probably 80% average risk, about five to 10% will get in a layperson's mind a positive genetic feedback or a, a test that says X marks the spot and then the familial cancer suggests Gee, four sisters all had breast cancer, but they did not have a positive blood test. There's a gene there, it just hasn't been identified yet. So the other quick thing while we have a few minutes too is that brings us to the topic of direct to consumer genetic testing. We see ads on TV, magazines, websites. Send your saliva and you know, it'll be interesting to find out that you're seven percent this and twenty percent that. What do you think about that?
0: Well, you know, there the there are a lot of direct-to-consumer genetic tests out there. And um, it's important to remember that for all of the good that genetic testing can do, and in some circumstances, genetic testing, especially if we find a positive result, it can be life-saving. But people look at direct-to-consumer genetic testing, they just need to be clear in their own minds why they want that information and what they might do with a positive test result. Um, why are you thinking of genetic testing? Clarify your purpose. Why do you want to do this testing at this point? It might be to learn about your ancestry, disease risk, cancer risk, um, or how you may metabolize certain medications. Just make sure that you know how to interpret the results of the testing or who is a reliable contact at the testing lab to help you with that. Know what you're being tested for. And more importantly, what you are not being tested for. Um, what What policy does the genetic testing company have in place to protect your personal and confidential information? Is there a policy? Will your information be sold to other industries? Is it automatically shared with potential lost family members? It's important for you to find out the privacy and selling policies of the genetic testing company before you make these decisions.
2: Sure. So you have to do your homework. I'm sorry, you have to do your homework before you send that saliva away. We have a few seconds left, so, and this is so important. Is there a website people can visit uh, to learn more about genetics and genetic testing? Um, There is. There is a website called for the National Society of Genetic Counselors,
0: and that website can be found at nsgc.org
2: and lots of great information there, including about genetic discrimination. Beautiful, that's so important, and I'm sorry we don't have more time. I wanted to hear more detail about the law, but there are laws that protect you if you have results um, very quickly. protects you from discrimination with health insurance and employment, but not from life insurance, long-term care, or disability. So read the consent form before you send that sample away. The website, again, NSGC, National Society of Genetics Counseling, NSGC.org. Sue, if somebody wanted to make an appointment with you, 215. 215 215-955-1011. You are a star. Thank you so much, Sue. We appreciate it. Thank you, Marianne. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners.